AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Mike told us about the results of a survey that some, uh, I guess, executives, managers, or, or technical people took to find out how maybe patches are applied or how patches are viewed. So Mike, you, you've got a story this week and it seems to be related somewhat to Oracle, but also to, I, I wanna say, mismatched priorities among uh, maybe the C-suite as opposed to what, what has to get done and what's actually being done. Can you elaborate a little more on that? For the last you know, few years, you know, we've seen increased engagement from the you know, executive level into information security, which is a good thing. You know, they're becoming more aware, they're becoming more um, you know, cognizant of the risks and taking action. The Poneman Institute recently did uh, a poll of 600 IT security folks um, pertaining to their organization's uh, kind of security practices and risk posture for Oracle eBusiness suite of applications. And, you know, Oracle eBusiness suite, they got about 13% of the ERP market, uh, so it's a good-sized chunk. And there's a lot of really mission-critical data inside of these enterprise applications. You have customer data, you have financial data, you've got HR-related data. If you're self-insured, maybe you've got some you know, health-related data in there. You know, it kind of depends. But all of that is you know, very useful if you're an attacker for things like identity fraud, social engineering, you know, so on and so forth. They conducted this poll, and they found that 70% of the people that they talked to really felt that uh, their organizations were susceptible to a major breach uh, because of insecurity in these Oracle eBusiness uh, applications. About that same percentage, 67%, reported that senior line of business leaders really, um, they didn't really feel that those individuals really understood these particular risks. And that about 73% of the respondents said that the C-level executives uh, we're underestimating the risk of insecure enterprise applications such as Oracle eBusiness um, when they looked at, you know, addressing risk inside of the organization. And now, organizations have spent a lot of money over the last several years because of all the major breaches that have come out and, you know, the, the malware that's been, you know, plaguing us, you know, the first half of this year. Um, you know, they've spent a lot of time and money really making sure that they're addressing security and patch management, you know, across their application portfolios. But in some cases, this really isn't extending to, you know, these enterprise applications uh, for whatever reason. Probably some people are still working with this older model where there's a firewall and things are going to come in and the firewall is going to block it. That's our mitigating factor, so we don't have to patch. But these days, that inner core is so open that maybe some of the people who are trying to get into your inner core are already in your inner core. But some of these vulnerabilities, unfortunately, can be exploited in such a way that, you know, you, you, you're inside already somehow, and this just gives you extra, an extra stepping stone or access to more information uh, that you thought you were protected, but you're not really, or you're not protected in the way you expected. One in five uh, organizations today are only doing security patches on Oracle eBusiness if they do major functionality upgrades, and more than half of them don't have any, um, you know, kind of regular plan for actually applying patches on a regular basis. And this is critical, and we see this a lot when we go into do, you know, assessments, vulnerability tests, penetration tests. You know, we will find a lot of uh, issues in these platforms that there are patches available for, but they just haven't been applied. 
So it's an interesting challenge um, that seems to be a bit of a gap in overall security programs. I, I think we can safely say that Sen and I have seen the same thing, not with this particular software from Oracle, but definitely that there, you know, you'll come across a system and it has some sort of issue with it, or someone alerts us to a, a case that we have to investigate, and a lot of this stuff was preventable. It's just that for whatever reason, the decision was made not to patch, or people weren't even aware that a patch was necessary or, or even available. You know, it's it's an interesting thing to find out sometimes that you know you've got people admitting their own things, or or just it was never put into the plan, or sometimes you come up with someone and be like, well, we need to budget extra money just to patch things. But that's, that's interesting. That's, that's something I'd never accounted for in my own model of, for me, it's, you know, to patch something, you open up the command terminal and you run the darn patch and it's patched. It's not, I don't think the business side of things, I think of the technical side. So right. there's always things that I haven't taken into account. It's interesting to find them out. Another study done by uh, Onapsis showed that there was a 46% increase year to date over last year in number of issues found in Oracle eBusiness. And it's not just uh, with Oracle eBusiness. That's just the context in which this particular uh, article was written. But other competitive platforms and similar platforms are seeing a lot of research um, and a lot of issues coming to the forefront and being identified and having patches made available. So you've got a giant kick-me sign hanging on these platforms uh, in all seriousness. And it really is an area that, uh, from just a risk management perspective, needs additional focus. What do you think, Stan? I, I, th I agree with both of you that we've seen things like this before. And I think one of the biggest challenges sometimes is actually applying the patches, kind of like you said. Kind of like you said, Mike. People have just become so numb to the number of patches. You know, you're talking about... Oh, this year, you know, the number of issues found has increased, and it's going to increase again next year as people get better at, at looking at application security. So it's just so much going on that people have, like, said, you know what, we'll just patch it all at once later, sometime later. I think some people must be numb to it by now. Some patches are highly critical. You must, you should really have had them patched a long time ago. And some, it might be okay because of other mitigating factors. Uh, to delay the patch. At the same time, you're kind of dealing with, well, if I patch, there's a, a chance I might bring the whole system down and my customers might be out of uh, service for a little while. So as a manager or as a person who kind of has to make this decision, hey, is this the patch I want to do right now? Is this that very critical one that if it takes customers down, it's okay because it's so critical, we can't let it, the system be unpatched? Or is it one of those other kinds of patches that there are mitigating factors, and we don't have to worry about it. Patch fatigue certainly is a, a real phenomenon. But another thing to, to think about is sort of the, you know, the weak link kind of syndrome, right, where, you know, attackers might focus on, you know, the desktop, or they might focus on web applications, or they might focus on some other aspect of IT. And then as that gets attention and as, you know, solutions become harder and that bar gets risen higher and higher for them to, you know, achieve whatever their objectives are, they start looking for the area that's not being focused on. And right now, this seems to be an area that's uh, not being focused on, and, you know, we could see some significant impacts from that. The one lesson is really, you know, risk management in general, and patches in particular, is a tricky business. I guess in recent history, you know, with the CD and the standardization of criticalities, it's important to pay attention to that criticality score of each vulnerability that's disclosed 
and then really weigh that against the mitigating factors you have. So you have to be really sure about your mitigating factors if you're, willing, if you're going to be accepting the risk. So this was an interesting story. Um, I love hearing about botnet takedowns. You know, whenever the good guys score a couple of points, I feel really good about it. Yes. And this one seemed like a really interesting collaborative effort between a bunch of different companies. Yes. Uh, so I was reading the story uh, on the Akamai blog. Um, and it looks like, uh, I guess, August 17th or somewhere thereabouts uh, of this year, there was a DDoS attack that was experienced by lots of different content distribution networks. Mm -hmm. Akamai is one of them. And, you know, as usual, you know, security researchers start digging into these things. And what was interesting is because of previous, I guess, informal and formal collaborating, collaborative groups that they have already established, they were able to reach out to like industry partners mm -hmm. at, at similar, you know, content distribution networks or at companies that have a totally different uh, business model. Uh, is not content distribution, maybe networking or malware research analysis. Sure. And uh, they were able to figure out that the thing behind the attacks was this Android botnet uh, called Wirex or Wirex, I guess mm -hmm. it depends. It's hard, there's no standard for pronouncing uh, malware names. And Wirex is an Android botnet. Originally was being used for click fraud, which is you know clicking on ads that aren't actually being viewed by humans, so the money that's being spent on advertising is effectively lost to those advertisers and it goes to whoever runs that botnet for those clicks. But it's been turned into a DDoS botnet as well. One of the things they call out, which I think is really good, is uh, the, the collaboration uh, which, uh, you know, between the different contributors. And everybody has a different strength. Yep. And I think they were all able to, you know, the different companies were all able to bring their own strength to bear uh, to kind of figure out the whole picture. You know, from the malware and the different variants of the malware to how the attacks worked, uh, to this, the fact that the C2 was you know, no longer click fraud, it was more like the DDoS. Right. Uh, and they encourage other companies that maybe are suffering from DDoS attacks to maybe not be so afraid and publish some of the details of the DDoS attacks. Because those details, they can help to figure out where is the malware coming from, uh, what kind of malware is responsible for creating this, and then maybe you know getting those things out of the Play Store or getting those things off of the internet or blacklisting them and things sure. like that. So you can you can attack the problem from multiple angles. Like you said, getting the malware out of the store as, and the, as opposed to like filtering the traffic or sinkholing the command and control. Right. You need a bunch of different hands to work all those problems at once. Yes. Especially if you're going to solve the problem and not just address the symptom. That's true. Did they involve law enforcement in this one? That's uh, always the question, right? I think I did see uh, they, they thanked, I believe, the FBI for their participation. So Good. it must be yeah, that they work with law enforcement. There's a lot of different elements to taking down a botnet or to discovering uh, you know, a malicious actor. Um, different companies, different partners, I guess, vendors, they have different visibility into the into the internet, you know, into how bad guys operate on the internet. Security is a deep and difficult field, and there's so many facets of it that no one person or even one company in many cases can handle the actions that are required to make real change, like taking down a botnet. There were a couple of things that really jumped out to me about this when I was, when I was looking at this story. The first is that you see a, an organization in the form of the attackers trying to capitalize on an asset, right? So in that regard, again, it's very much a business kind of oriented mindset. Second thing is that this is an example of industry finally trying to um, do what the attackers are very, very good at, which is collaborate with each other. 
You know, you read over and over if you look at these, you know, exploitation write downs and, you know, kind of kind of behind the scenes write ups of some of these things where the attackers are collaborating with each other. They're going to the underground and talking to other attackers, looking to buy passwords, looking to buy exploits, looking to work together with others who may have a part of the puzzle that they need in order to compromise a particular target uh, or achieve a particular objective. And industry has been, you know, reticent uh, uh, to do that um, and traditionally has kept security very close to the chest um, because of its sensitive nature. And so this is a really encouraging development that hopefully will get uh, more visibility that if we, you know, embrace some openness and embrace some collaboration, that we're going to get further faster in keeping our network safe from those that are trying to uh, compromise them. I think that was a way to put uh, malware analysis like in a more corporate setting, like return on investment. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, a, it's a valid perspective, sure. Yes. I mean, the, the, the collaboration that you mentioned is absolutely critical for solving these sorts of problems. I wouldn't say finally that it's occurring because I've seen enough in my time, my brief time Pretty here high. to say that you know, collaboration is definitely occurring. And there have been a number of major botnet takedowns in the last, let's say, five to seven years, well, at least while I've been doing this job. Uh, so it's occurring, definitely. Um, I think maybe bringing it more into the public light as opposed to, like you said, working behind the scenes. There's benefits to both. I know you, you want to do all of your research and get everything you know, done before the bad guys have a chance to react to it and then take your action. But also tooting our own horn a little bit, I think, is, is a valuable thing to say that, yeah, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. There, there are solutions. There are people out there who have solutions to these problems. A lot of technical guys, we kind of like to do our thing. And sometimes we forget that, hey, it's time to maybe talk to my counterparts in a different, uh, in a different uh, company or somewhere else. Uh, so this kind of shows us an example of where that was successful. And I think that's why it's so inspiring. It's good to see people working together, not just sharing information or our war stories, but actually collaborating and saying, this is our objective. We're gonna take down this botnet. We're gonna do it this way. And we're gonna make sure that it's, it sticks. So internet weather for this week, these are the top 10 most probe ports. No surprises in the top five. They're completely unchanged, which I don't think has happened in a while. I mean, they've been moving around for a bit, but the top five to have absolutely no relative change is kind of interesting. Well, I think the, the fact that things stay at the top for so long is, is interesting because it means that there's, someone made the decision that there is value in scanning these ports. And you may think, you know, port 22, 23, SSH and Telnet, those are so tapped out, they're so played out. Uh, all the passwords that are going to be cracked on those ports are likely cracked at this point. All the devices with the really easy ones have been found, but maybe not. So port 23 is uh, Telnet, port 22 SSH, port 1433 is MS SQL, 80 is web traffic, and 445 is SMB, which has been used mostly by the WannaCry worm. Uh, port 123 is actually up six spots, and uh, that's NTP. Typically, you'll see it here because someone's looking for points to do a reflective DDoS attack off of. 1900 UDP is SSDP, um, which again is used for reflective. Again, anything that's UDP, typically it's here because someone's trying to use it for reflective DDoS. For the most sources probing, 23 is at the top, uh, no change from last week. 445 is in second place, no change from last week. Probably a lot of WannaCry infected machines still out there. Port 22, TCP is SSH. 5358 is usually related to Hajime uh, IoT bots. Port 80 is web again, more ICMP, whole bunch of ICMP, another ICMP. 
Uh, then 6881 is typically associated with BitTorrent, which may or may not be an artifact of the fact that when you look at BitTorrent networks, they have a single source and a whole bunch of different endpoints. And to a scanning detection algorithm, that looks a lot like uh, scanning. So looking at port 9000, this was not on our top 10. Right. I noticed it because it was a significant change in the amount of traffic we typically see. You can see for the last uh, 30 days, um, you've got, this was an IoT vulnerability from back in June and July. And I remembered that one. And I thought, what, what did that look like back then? Well, that's what it looked like. This is your 365 yeah, day view. And that is. little thing there is, is relative to that massive spike that we saw uh, back in June. So yeah. just to show one more time the difference between those that as opposed to that. So it fell off our radar and it came back and when I took a look at the, the graph, I said, wow, that's a huge change, you know, gone from almost nothing to a couple thousand. Then I looked at the old slides and um, no, it's, it's not quite as much of a change because back in, I want to say July, we were seeing much more traffic than that. But, you know, it's still kind of interesting to review your own history because if something sort of tickles the back of your brain and says, I think I know that poor, I know we've seen it before, with going back and investigating and, and having that context. If you uh, continued, it kind of would go here. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Oh, well. I mean, yeah. It's just but, interesting. But it did, you can see that somebody shut that, that fire hose off at some point, so yeah. most likely a single botnet. But yeah, pretty interesting, and context is important. So even when you think that's a major anomaly, uh, guess what? It's not the worst we've ever seen. You know, there's something starting to creep up back there. Yep. And usually with the smaller spike, we see something much bigger later. So hopefully it won't become a bigger problem like before. I'll have to keep an eye on that one. That little spike is usually what we see when somebody rediscovers something or discovers something. There's usually a little spike and then there's followed by a much bigger spike. 5358, um, which is the web services for devices API, but also very strongly associated to Hajime. Uh, we did see an uptick of that about the start of this, this past month and some changes there. And maybe the last few days it's dropped off maybe by I want to say 4,000 scan sources all of a sudden have just disappeared. Uh, not really clear why, but interesting nonetheless. And still Hopefully in their top 10. Hopefully they got cleaned up or something like that. I'd like yeah. to think that. Or maybe yeah. they just got rebooted and not just reinfected yet. Right. Port 445 uh, TCB, which is SMB, most likely still WannaCry. You can see, you know, back around uh, halfway through July was somewhere around 25,000 scan sources. And we're peaking out around 40 to uh, 42,000 scan, scan sources per hour. So there's a still a slow trend upwards on this one. So yeah. there still appear to be either machines out there that still have not been infected and are slowly being added to this pile or slow increase in other sources of interest in this vulnerability. I mean, this doesn't necessarily mean it's WannaCry. It could be somebody actively scanning four bots or four infected or vulnerable machines to build in their own botnets for some other reason. It's hard to say just from this, this graph. Yeah, what, one interesting thing, and we probably did mention this before, is that if you look at, like, at the other scanning activity, like the Hajime worm, it's kind of stable, but this thing has the peaks and valleys, which usually I associate with human user behavior. Mm -hmm. So probably some subset of these machines, probably this subset, are the machines that you know, come on and off. Yep as people come to work or and turn on their laptops. And you can see a cycle here of about, like if you pick an arbitrary start point, like say here, where you have every seven days, it starts to tail off and then another seven and it tails off another seven. Yeah, those That's, are the weekends. I'm glad to see that people uh, take time off on Sundays 
a little bit less on Saturdays, and well, they start to work less on Fridays here. Was this the uh, the weekend? Uh, the Labor Day weekend. The Labor Day. Yeah, weekend. I don't think it was because if you take a look at this one here, that's today. That was yesterday, okay. and that's Sunday. So I guess so it that's wasn't a Monday. A, still that wasn't a weekend for everybody. Not a, not across the world, no. Yeah. So that's some evidence that there is international infections out yes. there that all account for our, us taking the day off here in the U.S. And that's everything. Stan had a theory that uh, over this Labor Day weekend that we celebrated here in the United States, that 445 scanning may have gone down a bit. Turns out that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and it shows that even, even when some of us are having a nice, relaxing, long weekend here in the U.S., that other folks are still hard at work, or at least their bots are. Just because it's the same thing, uh, it doesn't mean that you're totally protected, or you should still be vigilant. And those top 10 ports, even though they're the same, they kind of help to remind us every week that those threats are still out there, that 445 is still out there, the, uh, the Mirai port 23 and port 22 brute forcing for Zordas, that's still out there. People are still trying to take advantage of that. I, I think that top 10 helps to remind us of that. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.